Let's dive in. Um, you ever read something or seen something in an article and thought, what did he say or what did she say? And like get on Google, like did this, really, did this person really say that? Or even get on Snopes.com. I don't know if anybody does that anymore, uh, but I used to. Like, is that real? Uh, pretty much anything on Facebook you have to check. Is that real? Because we all, uh, I'm not going to go on a thing about Zuckerberg, but we do have to verify. And there are things that people say that make us think, did they really say that? Like if you watch The Office, pretty much anything Michael Scott says, you're like, did he really say that? Like that awkward or that crazy? Jesus had a tendency to do these types of things, all right? To say things that confused people, that shocked people, all right? That stirred people up. Many times it was his parables that did this, um, that initiated or, or caused these types of reactions in people. And beneath the surface of these parables, we find holy depth and power. One of my uh, favorite professors, Scott McKnight, says parables are a performative, imaginative analogy designed to offer an alternative worldview. Parables appeal to the imagination. People would listen and try to enter and experience the imaginative world Jesus was describing. You don't get them until you allow yourself to imagine a world like he's describing. And as adults, I think we have an increasingly difficult time the older we get um, using our imaginations. All right, kids can use their imaginations a lot easier than we can. And part of following Jesus, he talks about having a childlike faith and being able to imagine and enter into a world that he is describing. And if you want a snapshot of the world he's describing, um, you could read the whole New Testament, but you could really zero in on it in Matthew chapter 5 through 7. Like, this is the world that Jesus is leading people into, and there are parts of it that are beautiful, that are parts of it that seem absurd and really naive. Like, there's no way that's possible. Like, loving enemies, turning the other cheek. That's the politics of Jesus, Matthew 5 through 7. And that is the world he is trying to lead us into individually and as, as, you know, as human beings. And following him into that requires imagination. And he used parables a lot to kind of start, like, kind of reignite imagination, particularly in this culture, this Jewish culture that was so tied down to the law, like everything's got to fit within the law. And he's trying to break them out of that paradigm saying like, I am the law. The law has been fulfilled. It's beautiful. It's done. And now we're going to break outside of the box and parables helped introduce that. So we're going to spend the next six weeks when we meet on Sunday mornings doing a series called In His Own Words. Kind of a series like, he said that? What, is, what does that even mean by him saying that? And that's kind of what we're going to dive into. So I can think of no better way to introduce this series and this angle of, he said that? What does that mean? Than by starting with today's Jesus quote. This is Jesus said this. The kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins. Yeah, Jesus said that. You read that without any context. I mean, what? What does that even mean? He said that? So let's, let's set this up with a bit of, I intentionally just left it at that line with no context because you take one snippet of scripture or one thing Jesus said out of context and you're like, wait, huh? You've got 2,000 years of history. You've got Eastern versus Western worldview. Why is he talking about virgins? Like what is happening here? So let's dive into this a bit. So 
within this parable, Jesus is going to mention uh, a bridegroom, which is symbolic of himself, Jesus Christ. There are also three stages to a Jewish wedding. We need to know a little bit about like, what, what a Jewish wedding was like back then. Uh, keep in mind, we're in a very patriarchal, I think I said that right, society, okay? And we're still recovering from that <laughs> 2,000 years later. So step one in a Jewish wedding was engagement. The Jewish father with a Jewish son and the Jewish father with a, uh, a daughter, they meet and they make a formal agreement for the son and the daughter to be married. Step, step two is betrothal. So there's a ceremony where mutual promises are made between the son and the daughter, and that's a totally separate thing in that culture. Today, it's included in the common wedding ceremony. We call them vows. But in that time, it was a completely separate thing. Then approximately one year later is the wedding. All right, and that's the groom, and it was like a surprise. The groom would just unexpectedly show up and like, I'm here for you. And then the wedding would happen. And then the wedding would last for usually a week. All right, Jewish weddings, they know how to party. Like Jesus' first miracle was at a Jewish wedding. They'd been drinking so much that they ran out of wine. And he's like, I'll hook you up. I got more. And he turned water into wine. So that's a snapshot of what a Jewish wedding is like. So you need to, we need to know that kind of context to kind of get a grasp of why he's using you know, these, this language in this um, parable. Why the number 10? There were usually 10 candles in a Jewish bridal procession. So it was just a, a number that had meaning to the story, to the context of talking about a wedding. Why virgins? I have absolutely no idea. <laughs> I don't. There's no, I have no idea why, why he chose that. And again, I am totally fine not knowing everything about the Bible and not knowing everything about Jesus. But I think we know enough to dive into this. Matthew chapter 25, verses 1 through 13. At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like 10 virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps but did not take any oil with them. The wise ones, however, took oil and jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight, the cry rang out, Here's the bridegroom, come to meet him. Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, give us some of your oil, our lamps are going out. No, they replied, there may not be enough for both us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went with him to the wedding banquet and the door was shut. Later, the others also came, Lord, Lord, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, truly, I tell you, I don't know you. Therefore, keep watch because you do not know the day or the hour. Um, there is an enormous amount of depth in this parable that we don't have time to cover at all. Like we, we could probably spend six weeks just talking about this parable. He's getting in, he's getting in some big stuff here. Um, but I do want to talk about some of what we learn about the nature of God from this parable. What do we learn about the world that he is trying to lead us into? So number one, I want to start with midnight. He mentions that. That's when the bridegroom comes. Midnight to us now, I mean, that's probably when many of us go to bed, all right, because we live in an age of there's power, there's lights, there's Wi-Fi, there's Netflix. Uh, the kids go, if we have kids, they go to bed, and we're like, 
all right, time to unwind, all right, and we get sucked into like a YouTube deep dive. Next thing you know, it's one in the morning, and you're like, I got to get up for work in the morning. So midnight's not really that big of a deal to us, but in an agrarian culture, in a culture that's based really in manual labor, where there's no power, there's no indoor plumbing, sun up and sun down, that's when life happens, and when the sun goes down, you go to bed. So when Jesus says midnight, he's talking about the middle of the night, like this is the time and the hour where you're at your deepest state of rest, where you are the furthest away from any kind of action. All right, th- th- this is, you're completely out of it and, and not expecting anything to happen. And that's when God shows up. And that's one of the, par- that's one of the qualities that Jesus is revealing about God's kingdom in this parable is that God can work and show up and intervene in our life at any time at any place, day or night, and to be ready for it, because it will happen. So my question to you, individually, in your household, are you living in a state of readiness? Because it's easy to be ready when the lights are on, all right, like at Neighborhood Collective or at Sunday Worship Gathering. Like you, you all came here today expecting something spiritual, something faith-related, something about Jesus. Like you're like, okay, showing up, worship gathering, or maybe it was a Bible study or discipleship huddle. It's easy to be a Christian and to follow Jesus when the lights are on like that. It's not so easy when we are caught off guard, all right, when we are not ready, when the lights are off, when everything's not aligned for you to receive from him. But many times, maybe I could venture to say most times, that's when God acts in our life is when we least expect it, when we are not ready. And so one of the things I think we learned from this is to be ready. I saw this video this week. Uh, I think it was around six months ago. There was a, uh, a potential, an almost school shooting in, I think it's Parkside High School in or- Oregon. And uh, thankfully, the gunman didn't fire a shot. And uh, there was a teacher, uh, a former like University of Oregon football player, I think it was assistant coach there, who intervened and stopped this from happening. And they just released the video of this. And it's amazing. So I just want to show you, there's a news report. It's like 30 seconds long. So sh- take a look at the surveillance video of this and Tonight, we're going to get a we're picture. Tonight we're getting a look at new surveillance video showing a high school coach's encounter with a student armed with a shotgun. The student brought the gun to Park Rose High School in Portland, Oregon last spring. Football coach Keenan Lowe saw the student and disarmed him. Coach Lowe then grabbed the young man and hugged him. Lowe spoke to our CBS affiliate in Portland, Coin TV, shortly after it happened. I was there to, to save him. I was there for a reason. Um, and that, you know, there, this, there, this is a life worth living. Remarkable. Students at Park Grove High School say Lowe was a true hero. Tonight, we're getting... So just a quick snippet there. Whatever oil is burning in that guy's lamp, that's the oil I want. Like, I want to be ready like that. And... I don't think many of us wake up in the morning and go to our place of of work thinking you're going to have to face something that traumatic or that sudden. Um, But he was ready. Somehow, he was ready to engage in a truly Christ-like way. And I'm a uh, a pacifist. And sometimes when I I talk to people about pacifism and and responding to the world and non-violently, I can see the oh, you're so naive look in their eyes. Or sometimes they just flat out, flat out say it. I had another conversation about a month ago with someone at a conference, 
and they, they have a mistake. They, they always think that being a pacifist means being passive. And it's like, no, it's just as aggressive as violence, but it's with love and it's with gentleness and it's with peace. And that's what you saw on that screen. You saw someone who looked like Jesus engage and be ready to, to respond to a situation and in that case, save lives. But there's other moments in our day like that. Um, it, it's small, it could be big like that, where God is gonna show up and we have to ask ourselves, am I ready? Am I ready to receive and to engage in that moment where Jesus might show up? So I, I want you to think about that on a personal level because we're all wired differently. What would it take for you to be ready like that? All right, what's it take for your household to be ready like that, you and your family? How does it look for you to go into each day and each night ready? And I want you to mull that over, and we'll come back to that. The second thing I want to talk about in this parable is I want to talk about the limits of the lamps. Ten virgins carry a lamp in one hand, and they carry a jar in the other. They're not driving around in my minivan, which has everything in it. All right, I've got lawn chairs in there. I've got sports equipment. I've got bottled water. I've got food. I've got cleats. I've got Carrie's makeup. I've got power. I've got like 10 power adapters, none of which work anymore. I don't think, but they're in there. All right, I, I could live in my van for like three or four days and be totally fine, totally healthy. They don't have any of that. They don't have a backpack. They don't have a trailer. They don't have a minivan. They've got a jar of oil and a lamp walking into the darkness, walking into the night. It's a completely different scenario. They have two hands. I was talking with someone the other day who is absolutely exhausted and spent. You can see it in this person's eyes. And in our dialogue together, we started listing out everything uh, that this person was carrying with them all right, in life. Like what, what are the big things that you're carrying? You got a marriage, you've got kids, you've got grandkids, you've got your health to be concerned about and on and on and on. The list just kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger to the point of where I I feel like I'm a person that can handle a lot of different things. I kind of like that. I kind of like having a a lot of different pots boiling and and that's kind of how I like to live my life. But even I was overwhelmed. I'm like, that is overwhelming to think about having that going on, all these different things to carry with you and being weighed down by all of that to the point of where this person can't even move forward on the journey of life. They're just completely exhausted and weighed down. We have two hands, people. That's it. We don't have five. We have like 16 hours to operate in a day, not 20, not 22. All right, 16. That's what what we shoot for when it comes to productivity. We have to understand our limits and what we're capable of. And that is really hard for me because I love to say yes to everything. I want to be involved in absolutely everything. I want to solve every problem, even if I don't really know how. I want to try to figure it out or find the, find the people that can figure it out. But we have to, part of being ready is understanding our limits and understanding what we can carry and how we're going to be ready for God to move. And then the third thing, viewing this parable through the lens of the Christian belief that God is Father, God is Son, and God is Holy Spirit, Trinitarian theology. I can't help but view the oil as the Holy Spirit. Like the Holy Spirit is our source of fuel. It's what keeps the flame lit. It's what Jesus left us when he ascended to heaven until his return. We have this Holy Spirit living within us, living within our 
our church and our world. So in order for the fuel to keep the light burning so that we'll have to be ready for God to move, we have to keep pouring the spirit into our lamps. So I want you to think about what lights your fire. Like what fuels you in your, in your holiness and in your, your discipleship and in your, your readiness for God to act. Because it's probably different for many of us. What energizes you in a holy and godly way? Because that's the oil you should be carrying with you. Wherever you go, all right, it doesn't get left at home. It's not something you just pick up when you feel like it or when you create the time. It goes with you everywhere, just like with the 10 ladies. So I've asked you some questions today that I want you to think about. What's it look like for you to be ready and waiting upon the next act of God? The second thing is, what are your limits? Have you exceeded them and what you're trying to carry with you on the journey? The third thing is, what fills you up with the Holy Spirit? What fuels you? So if you want my advice, I would suggest doing those. Figure out a way. It's simple, but it's really hard. All right, that conversation I was having with that person the other day, we were listing all these different things off. It's like, it, the, the, it's very simple to understand the problem. <laughs> Figuring out off-ramps for each of these and, and cutting and limiting yourself, that's hard. But that's discipleship. The ro- Jesus says the road is narrow. Right? It is not a broad, easy path. I think sometimes when we follow God, we have a tendency to think that he's just going to like push all the roadblocks and problems and potholes out of the way. Like This is where I'm leading you, so now I've made it easy. And that is the complete opposite of what happens, okay? Because what happens when you follow God is there is a, a balance to good and it's evil and it's known as Satan in scripture. There are principalities and powers that are gonna be pushing up against your movement of holiness and it's not gonna feel good. So it, it can be quite a grind and which is why we have to revisit, continually revisit things like, okay, what does it look like for me to be ready? What are my limits? What is my fuel? What can I carry with me? So acknowledging those, moving on those, and responding to those. So I want you to think about that for you, for you personally, for your household, your, your network. But I also want to think about this uh, at a church level. So I want to think out loud for just a few minutes about what's it look like for our church to be ready to respond to God? All right, what, what's the oil? What are the lamps that we're carrying? So just to f- mention a few, this is not all-encompassing. Our lease in the living room is up in 15 months. What are we going to do? What's next? Definitely thinking about that right now. All right. What's next? You know, what's that look like financially? What's that look like as far as connecting more and more uh, with people in our community, with refugees? What does that look like? That's something we are very actively as a pastoral team, the five of us, thinking and praying about. Uh, a second thing that we're really thinking about as far as ready, we're ready for God to make his next move is our relationship with refugees, both locally and globally. Um, there is something, there's a movement afoot there of the Holy Spirit, and we are going to continue to follow the promptings there. And we are continually ready and continually pouring oil into that lamp and, and letting it burn. Um, one of those moves that we have made uh, and respond to the Spirit of God. Financially, for the past seven years, 
uh, Restore Church has given 10% of her offering income away every month to church planting. So for the last seven years, that's a pretty significant chunk of change away to church planting. And we decided as a pastoral team in August to sh- begin shifting that from church planting to supporting refugees locally and globally. And so our first shift is this month. We're giving 5% starting this month to our ministry partners in Greece. Uh, and taking to Samaral, we're supporting 75% of their salary as a church community. And we are not a big church. And they have a network in the hundreds of Syrian, Afghan, and Iraqi refugees. That it's incredible what they're doing. This amazing combination of justice, advocacy, and the love of Christ. And they are, they're doing something special, and we are the fuel to that. And that's one move that we've made. And now we're considering, okay, how do we, what's that look like locally? And we're thinking, like, does that tie into our next space? Like, these are things we're thinking about. We see what, what, what Lanise is doing, uh, who is overseeing City of Refuge, and we're like, okay, how do we fuel her? How do we pour oil into that lamp? Um, We've also shifted our focus in church planting in another way. So over the last two years in particular, like specifically, um, we have had the opportunity, uh, it's mostly me and Carrie, but it really is our church community to coach and encourage and train missional leaders and church planters. Like do, we're into the dozens now. And we feel like God is uh, moving there and we are ready for the next move. And we don't really know what that is yet, but God is showing us grace and favor there and he's given us a real heart and concern for people who are trying to, to share the love of Christ with other people. And it's not so much, we feel like we're shifting, not so much, um, we're not so great at like, nah, that's the wrong. We shifted from giving our resources financially to missional leaders and church planters and then to giving of ourselves, like of our knowledge and our experience. Here's the mistakes we've made. Here's the things that we've done that have worked. And I'm, being, a, being out on mission is a lonely road. And to come alongside people who are experiencing that kind of adversity and that kind of loneliness, it's pretty special to be a part of that. And I think God is leading us as a church community into moving even deeper into that. And we don't really know what that looks like yet, but it's something we're ready and praying for. So we have lit our lamps, we have filled our jars with the oil of the Holy Spirit, and we are communally venturing into the frontier, like into the next move of God. And we hope you'll pray with us. We hope you'll share your ideas with us. And I really hope that you will consider what this means for you personally. Like what does it mean for you to be ready for God to continue to move and act in your life? Let's pray.